Welcome to Music History Monday for October 26th, 2020. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is Musical Riots and Assorted Mayhem. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. We mark the riot that occurred on October 26, 1958, 62 years ago today, when Bill Haley and his Comets played a concert at Berlin's Sportpalast to an audience of some 7,000 people. Signs of trouble had occurred at Haley's first two German concerts on the previous two evenings, the first one in Hamburg and the next in Essen. But no one could have anticipated the mayhem in Berlin, where some 500 rock and rollers and police staged a fist and stick battle during the show. Five policemen were badly beaten, six audience members severely injured, while damages to the venue amounted to over 50,000 Deutschmarks. Both the East and West German authorities reacted with outrage. The West Berlin Senate banned all future rock and roll concerts. In East Germany, Neues Deutschland, the official Communist Party organ, condemned Haley in a front page editorial for, and we quote, turning the youth of the land of Bach and Beethoven into raging beasts, unquote. Yeah, with all due respect, we would observe that just a few years before, the youth of the land of Bach and Beethoven had indeed behaved like raging beasts. The newspapers in both East and West Berlin agreed that the Haley riots were, quote, the worst disturbance of its kind that Berlin has ever seen, unquote. In East Berlin, Neues Deutschland took things further, accusing Haley of being, quote, an agent of so-called aggressive Western politicians who were seeking to exploit rock and roll to create an atom war psychology among young people, unquote. Bill Haley and his comets caused a riot? Bill Haley, who sported an aw shucks cowlick on his forehead, who performed wearing a plaid jacket and a bow tie, whose hit song, Rock Around the Clock, was and remains as benign as a St. Bernard puppy on Valium? That Bill Haley? Yes, that Bill Haley caused a riot. Let's put this into historical perspective. Bill Haley was the first white rock and roll star, someone whose fame predated that of Elvis Presley by roughly one year. For all its youthful aficionados, rock and roll was the music of the present and the future, an electrified, uber-rhythmic, post-World War II dance music that had little, if anything, to do with what they considered the hopelessly stilted pre-war music of their parents. For its adult critics, rock and roll was nothing but primitive ugliness, devoid of grace and civility. Rock and roll concerts became ground zero for post-war adolescents rebelling against their parents, and scuffles with authority figures, meaning the police, became a feature 
of many rock and roll concerts, part of the show. In Germany, the post-war generation of adolescents had rather more to be angry about than their American counterparts. Their parents and grandparents had perpetrated one of the greatest catastrophes in history. They themselves grew up in deprivation. Berlin was still a shattered husk in 1958. The bourgeois patriarchal society instituted by the West German Chancellor Konrad Adenauer, 1876-1967, did little to allay their cynicism. It's no wonder that many of these German kids, taking their cue from their American counterparts, used the occasion of a rock and roll concert to vent their collective spleen. And no wonder that the West German authorities banned subsequent rock and roll concerts indefinitely. Using the Bill Haley brouhaha as a precedent, it would be all too easy to build an entire post or two or three around rock and roll inspired riots. Instead, we will spend the remainder of this post observing musical riots that occurred in more unexpected venues in the hoity-toity confines of concert halls and opera houses. The Rite of Spring. We begin with the most famous of all such riots, the one that accompanied the premiere of Igor Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring. My Music History Monday post for May 29, 2017 examined that riot in detail. For now, we'd observe its high points. The date, May 29th, 1913. The place, the Théâtre des Champs-Élysées at 15 Avenue Montaigne in Paris's Tony 8th arrondissement. The event, the hugely anticipated premiere of a ballet entitled The Rite of Spring with music by the 30-year-old St. Petersburg-born composer Igor Stravinsky, 1882-1971, and choreography by the dancer Vaslav Nijinsky. The performers, the Ballet Russe, or the Russian Ballet, founded and bankrolled by the Russian impresario Sergei Diaghilev, 1872-1929. The story. The story, or scenario, of the ballet was jointly concocted by Stravinsky and the Russian painter and folklorist Nicholas Rorick. It describes various fertility rites and human sacrifice as practiced by Bronze Age Slavs. The theme of the Rite of Spring is birth and death, primitive and violent, the fundamental experiences of all existence, devoid of any particular cultural context. And that was Stravinsky's great compositional challenge, to create music that somehow evoked Bronze Age Russia, he had to conjure up music devoid of any pre-existing cultural context, a music that sounded like no other music, a music that was primitive, earthy, sexual, and in every way new. For this, Stravinsky turned to drum-driven, asymmetrically accented rhythm. For weeks, for months before the premiere, word had circulated that a stunning new production by Sergei Diaghilev's Russian Ballet Company would push the very edges of music, dance, stage design, human sexuality, and ritual. Of course, this advance word had been circulated by Diaghilev himself, who had a genius for production 
publicity, and scandal. In other words, a genius for putting derrieres into seats. Those seat prices had been doubled for the occasion, and an extremely varied audience filled them. The most expensive seats were occupied by social snobs, members of high society dressed to the nines, the men in tailcoats and top hats, and the women in silk evening dresses and tiaras. But aesthetic snobs were there as well, members of the counterculture in their ordinary clothes and berets, a style of casual headgear that was considered a symbol of revolt against the toppers and tiaras of the beau monde. The counterculture crowd was a ready-made cheering section that, according to the writer and artist Jean Cocteau, quote, would applaud novelty at random, simply to show their contempt for the rich people in the boxes, unquote. And so, when the viciously pounding music began, Devoid of any such niceties as thematic melody or harmonic progression, that part of the audience that was prepared to be offended was offended and began hissing and booing. And that part of the audience prepared to be offended by that hissing and booing turned on the perpetrators, and so the battle was joined. The agent provocateur who had engineered all of this was Sergei Diaghilev. It was by no means a given that a riot would occur at the first performance of the right. However, Diaghilev assured that it would by means of his advanced publicity and ticket distribution. He gave complimentary seats just behind the high-priced dress circle and near the boxes to young people who were instructed to applaud the work at all costs. Following the show, Diaghilev's famous comment was, quote, exactly what I wanted." Unquote. Ballet Mécanique. The date? June 19, 1926. The place? Once again, the Théâtre des Champs-Élysées at 15 Avenue Montaigne in Paris's 8th arrondissement. The event? The premiere of the futurist musical work Ballet Mécanique by the Trenton, New Jersey-born George Antile, 1900-1959. The instrumentation, 16 synchronized pianolas, that's a type of player piano, a percussion battery to create industrial sound effects that included three xylophones, four bass drums, and a tam-tam, a gong, two live pianists, seven electric bells, a siren, and three airplane engine and propeller assemblies mounted on stands. The story. According to Antile himself, quote, My ballet mechanique comes out of the first and principal stuff of music, time, space. Now I hope to present you not with an explosion, but the fourth dimension, the first physical realization of the fourth dimension. I am not presenting you with an abstraction. I am presenting you with a physicality like sexual intercourse." Unquote. Okay then. Antile loved machines and what he called the quote, anti-expressive, anti-romantic, coldly mechanistic aesthetic of the early 20s. Unquote. He described the piece as, quote, scored for player pianos, 
all percussive, like machines, all efficiency, no love. Written without sympathy, written cold as an army operates. Revolutionary, unquote. <laughs> and that it is. For 27 nonstop minutes, music devoid of reflection or feeling, music that for many at the Parisian premiere seemed to mirror the same brutal, mindless industrial war that had just slaughtered an entire generation of French men. The audience's reaction was mixed. The problems began immediately when the large fans that were being substituted for the airplane engines began blowing off the hats and toupees of various audience members. The American writer Brabig Imz described the scene, quote, People began to call each other names and to forget that there was any music going on at all. Ezra Pound took advantage of a lull to jump to his feet and yell, You are all imbeciles! One fat, bald gentleman lashed out his umbrella, opened it, and pretended to be struggling against the gale of wind from the electric fans, substituting for propellers. His gesture was immediately copied by many." Unquote. After the concert, fistfights broke out in the street between Antile supporters and his detractors. All told, it was the most substantial musical riot since the Paris premiere at exactly the same theater of Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring, 13 years, one month, and six days before. The Liebestode from Tristan und Isolde. The date? July 7th, 2001. The place? Jerusalem International Convention Center. The event? A concert of the Berlin Staatskapell Orchestra, conducted by Daniel Bernboim, part of the Israel National Arts Festival. The story? For a second encore, Berenboim ignored Israel's ban on the music of Richard Wagner and performed the Liebestode from Tristan und Isolde by Richard Wagner. Richard Wagner, 1813-1883, was a German composer of musical stage works that he insisted on calling music dramas in order to differentiate them from Italian and French operas, which he dismissed as being degenerate art. Yes, Richard Wagner was a jerk, one of the most loathsome, vain, contentious, and disreputable human beings ever to put pencil to music manuscript paper. However, he was also a visionary genius, without a doubt. The great challenge in dealing with Wagner is reconciling Wagner the man with Wagner the artist. Among the most despicable aspects of Wagner's personality was his virulent eliminationist anti-Semitism, which bordered on actual lunacy. He believed that the Jews were rootless itinerants who adhered to no law but their own, a separate race that, like some metastatic cancer, sucked the spiritual, economic lifeblood from and poisoned the gene pool of their host nations. Wagner's belief about Jews and the national destiny of the German people are binding elements in many of his works. In particular, his portrayal of Jews in his masterful four-music drama cycle known as The Ring of the Nibelung and in his final work, Parsifal, border on the pornographic. 
It should come as no surprise that long after Wagner's death, he became the favorite composer of a wannabe painter and architect named Adolf Hitler, 1889-1945. From there, Wagner's indelible link with Hitler's Reich and the Holocaust was a done deal. On May 14, 1948, Israel proclaimed its statehood. From the day of its creation, an unofficial ban on the public performance of Wagner's music went into effect in Israel. Fast forward to July 2001. The conductor and pianist Daniel Bernboim, an Argentina-born Jew who was raised in Israel, arrived in Jerusalem to perform with the Berlin Staatskapelle Orchestra. On Wednesday, July 4th, Bernboim gave a news conference during which someone's cell phone rang. The ringtone was Wagner's Ride of the Valkyries. Bernboim remembered, quote, The telephone ring was the Valkyries of Wagner, and I thought, if it can be heard on the ring of a telephone, why can't it be played in a concert hall? Unquote. At a concert, three days later, Bernboim returned to the stage to perform a second encore. He turned to the audience and asked them if they were willing to hear some Wagner. A 30-minute debate with the audience followed. <laughs> Welcome to Israel. Some audience members accused Bernboim of being a fascist. Many more stalked out of the hall, slamming the doors behind them. But the majority of the audience stayed in their seats and listened. After the performance, Bernboim took full responsibility for his actions, saying, quote, If you're angry, be angry with me, but please don't be angry with the orchestra or the festival management, unquote. The riot of condemnation began the next day. Bernboim was denounced by, among many others, Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon and President Moshe Katsav. Ehud Olmert, the mayor of Jerusalem, called Bernboim's behavior, quote, brazen, arrogant, insensitive, and uncivilized, unquote, and threatened to exclude him from future cultural events in the city. The director of the Simon Wiesenthal Center, Ephraim Zuroff, accused Bernboim of cultural rape. Was Bernboim's performance an act of disrespect or a powerful statement to Israel that old hatreds and rivalries must be put aside if the 21st century is to be different from the 20th? I'll let you decide, though I will assert that few things can make a more powerful political statement than music. Another example. The Mute Girl of Portici. The date? August 25th, 1830. The place? Brussels, Belgium. The event? A performance of Daniel Albers' opera, The Mute Girl of Portici, of 1827. The story? The action of the opera takes place in Naples in 1647. A pert fishermaid named Fenella has been seduced and abandoned by Alfonso, the son of the viceroy, meaning assistant king, of Naples. Fenella's brother, the fisherman Massaniello, is furious when he discovers what Alfonso has done, multiple times apparently. Already chafing under the tyranny of the viceroy, 
he and his fellow fishermen swear vengeance. With Massaniello in the lead, the people revolt, making them revolting people, and take control of Naples. Massaniello is crowned king. Naively, he spares the lives of Alfonso and a host of aristocrats. Massaniello is betrayed. He is poisoned and dies as Alfonso and his Spanish host retake the city. It is at this moment that Mount Vesuvius decides to erupt and Fenella, overcome with grief, throws herself into its molten magma. Early in the opera, Massaniello and his bud Pietro sing a duet entitled Sacred Love of Country, which concludes with these words. Sacred love of country, give us courage and pride. To my country I owe my life. I will have freedom. That's pretty fiery stuff. And incendiary it was when the opera was performed in Brussels on August 25th, 1830. For decades, the Catholic, French-speaking Walloons of Belgium had been dominated politically and economically by the Protestant, Dutch-speaking United Kingdom of the Netherlands to the north. When a revolution broke out in Paris in July of 1830, Belgian patriots were electrified. Here was the inspiration they'd been waiting for. All that was required was a match on the powder keg to begin a revolution of their own. That match was the Brussels performance on August 25, 1830 of Aubers, the Mute Girl of Portici. The just-quoted duet, Sacred Love of Fatherland, set off a riot in the theater. The audience, shouting patriotic slogans, poured into the streets. Gathering numbers as they marched, the audience became a mob. The mob marched on the government buildings and quickly occupied them. News of the uprising spread like wildfire and riots broke out across Belgium. Dutch attempts to retake Brussels by force failed. A Belgian Declaration of Independence followed on October 4, 1830. On February 7, 1831, less than six months after that performance of Aubers, the mute girl of Portici, the Belgian constitution was ratified and Belgium was recognized as a distinct national entity. Finally, four organs. The date? January 19, 1973. The place? Carnegie Hall, New York City. The event? A performance of Steve Reich's Four Organs. The musical idiom, now called minimalism, came into being during the early 1960s. Minimalism combines the steady beat of rock and roll with a distinctly non-Western view of musical time. It is music that consists of slowly changing, slowly evolving repetitions, a musical process inspired by various Asian musical cultures. Steve Reich's Four Organs of 1970 is such a work. In my humble opinion, this particular piece is best heard as a sonic environment in a museum or in a club setting while stoned. Whoa, man, I see colors, man. However, when performed in a traditional concert setting, 
its austerity can, among those already prone to it, induce temporary madness. That's what happened when it was performed at Carnegie Hall on January 19, 1973. Four organs is scored for four electric organs and two maracas. The maraca player provides the steady beat. The organs play nothing but a single chord, which is slowly elongated over the course of some 15 and a half minutes. The boos and catcalls began from almost the beginning of the performance. In the New York Times review of the concert, the critic Harold Schoenberg wrote, quote, There is really nothing to understand in this music. There is nothing much to like, nothing much to dislike. It is an exercise in acoustics. But the audience reacted as though red-hot needles were being inserted under their fingernails. There were yells for the music to stop, mixed with applause to hasten the end of the piece." Unquote. According to Michael Tilson Thomas, who was one of the organ players in the performance, quote, one woman walked down the aisle and repeatedly banged her head on the front of the stage, wailing, stop, stop, I confess, unquote. She actually banged her shoe, but let's not let the facts get in the way of a great story. Harold Schoenberg summed things up this way, quote, at the end of the performance, there were lusty boos. There was also a contingent that screamed approval. At least, there was some excitement in the hall, which is more than can be said when most avant-garde music is being played." Unquote. And there we have it. New music is new. That which is new often lacks context. That which lacks context is unknown. And for some of us, the unknown inspires fear and loathing, and hissing and booing. Thank you. To sample and download one or all of my many courses on subjects musical produced by The Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com.